Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking him to guide and direct us during this time of study. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you have revealed to us your word. In your word, you have given us a sufficient revelation that we might come to understand who you are and who we are. We come to understand your plan and purposes for mankind and how human history fits within the broader framework of the angelic conflict and Lucifer's rebellion against you in eternity past. We see in the scriptures that your righteousness and justice are displayed alongside of your love and your grace is clarified throughout the scriptures to show that uh, you love us not because of who and what we are but because of who you are and what Christ did for us at the cross. In your word you have revealed the beginning from the end and as we study the end times in the book of Revelation we pray that you would continue to Help us to see how this fits within a a framework of history. It not only just satisfies our curiosity about the future, but helps us to think more uh, precisely about how we fit within that plan, how our own history fits within the overall history of the human race, and how the decisions we make in relation to the application of your word fit within this overall plan and purpose. So may we be challenged by your word this morning as we focus on it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in the eighth chapter of Revelation, Revelation chapter 8, where we come to this uh, new section, new series of judgments called the Trumpet Judgments. The Trumpet Judgments. Verse 1 tells us when the Lamb, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who has taken the scroll from the right hand of God the Father, as we saw in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, when he breaks the seventh seal, there is silence in heaven for an hour. As we have gone through this study, we have seen that the scene shifts in Scripture, I mean in Revelation, the scene shifts from heavenly scenes to earthly scenes. Chapter 4 and 5 showed us the heavenly scene of 
the throne room of God, the search for someone worthy to open the scroll. The scroll represents the title deed to the planet to establish a kingdom on the planet. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the earth who comes forward to take that, to take that scroll. Chapter 6, he begins to open the scroll. The first six seals open, bringing judgment upon mankind. Chapter 7 focuses at a contemporaneous event, what is going on in heaven as God is sealing the 144,000 Jews and also providing the, there's also the scene of the martyrs in heaven who are praying that God would finalize his judgment on the earth dwellers, those who are in rebellion against him on the earth. Chapters 8 and 9 then describe the second series of judgments. The seventh seal is broken, and it reveals seven trumpet judgments. And in verse 2 we read, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. So they fit within this framework as we've seen. These charts should be more than familiar to many of you by now. After the rapture of the church, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in this age, then that means you are a member of the church, the bride of Christ, the royal family of God. And no believer in this age is going to go through the tribulation. The Lord Jesus Christ will come at some unannounced time in the future, could be today, could be next year or the next decade or even the next century. It has been imminent. That means there's no prophecy related to the rapture of the church. It has been imminent since Jesus ascended to heaven. He will return in the clouds for the church will be instantly taken to be with him, translated uh, into their resurrection bodies. This will precede the tribulation. There will be a transition period of an undetermined length of time, and then that final seven-year period will begin. In that first half of the tribulation, we have the seven seal judgments, the seventh seal revealing the seven trumpet judgments, which are described in Revelation chapters 8 and 9, which we are studying at this point. Last time we saw that the scene continues in heaven where another angel came, stood at the altar, the heavenly altar, holding a golden censer. This is a uh, also called a fire pan where the burning coals from the altar, the brazen altar would be taken in like, for example, in the tabernacle or temple and brought in to burn the incense, which represented prayer in the altar in the temple. It was a picture of prayer. And so this is a picture of the intercessory prayer, the petitions of the saints who have been uh, martyred and are in heaven calling upon God to execute his judgment upon the planet. In verse 5, we saw that the angel took the censer, filled it with the fire of the altar, threw it to the earth. This fire upon the earth indicates judgment. And there followed peals of thunder, sounds, and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. This precedes the events of the trumpets. Verse 6 then announces uh, the angels with the trumpets, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And in verse 7, the first sounded. And there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. 
And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, as we look at this particular particular verse, it introduces this first judgment. It is hail that is mixed with fire. If you have are familiar with the scriptures, you recognize that this is reminiscent of one of the ten plagues uh, that God brought against Egypt when God brought the Jews out of Egypt uh, in the about 1446-1447 B.C. There were ten judgments upon the Egyptians, and one of them was fiery hail. The word hail, the concept of hail, or sometimes translated hailstones in the scripture, uh, is referred to 31 times. Fourteen of those in the Old Testament are in the book of Exodus alone. Uh, Twenty-nine other times the Old Testament references them. Several of these are references related to or descriptive of the ten plagues in Egypt. It's used four times in the prophets to speak of the future judgments associated with the day of the Lord, that is the end-time judgments during the tribulation period. Three times hail or hailstones are mentioned in the New Testament. All three of those are in Revelation. Our passage here in Revelation 8-7, as well as 11-19 and Revelation 16-21. Now, a question that comes up is, how should we understand this? How are we to interpret this? Does this refer to literal hail mixed with literal fire and mixed with literal blood coming down upon the earth, or is this somehow symbolic of something else? If you listen to some people teach Revelation, everything becomes a symbol of something and nothing is interpreted literally. But we believe that the Bible is to be interpreted in a literal manner. Now, that does not mean we don't believe in figures of speech or symbols or metaphors or similes or any of those things, but it means that unless the passage indicates that there is some reason that we should take the uh, meaning of the passage in some sort of symbolic sense, we are to understand it in a literal manner. And when we take our understanding of how hail is used in the Scripture, we recognize that its normal meaning is to refer to uh, physical hail, a meteorological event that takes place as a result of certain uh, climactic factors. It is never used in Scripture as a pure allegory or symbol of something else. In fact, we can go back into the Old Testament and see the parallels between these judgments in the trumpet judgments and the plagues in Egypt. So I want to take just a short time to go back and examine the plagues of Egypt and remind you a little bit of what went on uh, in the plagues of Egypt as God brought judgment against the Egyptians. Now what's important to note is when God brought these judgments against the Egyptians, They were not done apart from grace. The grace that was evidenced was the the sending of Moses to Pharaoh to explain that it was time for the Pharaoh to release the Israelites from slavery so that they could go back to the land that God had given them. And Moses made it clear 
what God was commanding Pharaoh to do. And it was Pharaoh who made a decision to resist God again and again through the uh, series of the judgments. Pharaoh hardens his heart. He, we know that his heart was already hardened because of a understanding description in Romans chapter 1 that God has made his, uh, his existence clear through creation. Through just the dis- discovery of creation, the witness of creation, we understand many things about the nature of God. His power and his strength and his knowledge are evidenced by the complexity of the creation around us. And yet Romans chapter 1 tells us that man in his rebellion against God and rejection of God substitutes for the worship of God the worship of the creation. And this was true of Egyptian religion. And Egyptian religion had many different gods and goddesses. And as was typical in the ancient world, these gods and goddesses were associated with the powers of nature, associated with the seasons, associated with different uh, uh, different events that occurred in people's lives, such as birth and death, uh, the cycles of agriculture, the cycles of the seasons. And so this was uh, part of their culture and their entire belief system. And at the head of that belief system stood the Pharaoh, who was a God himself. He was considered to be divine. And so the Pharaoh had already bought into and believed this entire uh, system of idolatry and false false belief and a, and a b- belief in the nature gods. And so he has already hardened his heart against God. And so God is going to bring judgment upon them. And it's interesting to see how God multitasks when he brings judgment. He's not just trying to take the Israelites out. He's not just punishing uh, Pharaoh for keeping them in a bondage during this time. But at the same time, he's going to use these plagues to completely destroy the, the Egyptian religious system and demonstrate that he alone is God and that he has greater power than any of these gods or goddesses that the uh, Egyptians worshipped. Each of these plagues can be related to the function, the operations, uh, and the sphere of operation of any of the uh, Egyptian Deity. So we just look at these briefly. I don't want to go through an in-depth analysis, but the first plague was where the water was turned to blood. The water of the Nile was turned to blood. All of the water in Egypt was turned to blood, and this was specifically targeting the Nile, which was viewed and regarded as a god who brought life uh, to Egypt, because as the Nile would flood in its regular cycles, then this would take the uh, soil, uh, deposit fresh topsoil in the fields, water the fields, and it was the source of, of life and crops and fertility in Egypt. And so God is going to demonstrate his power and authority over the over the Nile. The Nile was also considered to be the bloodstream of one of the gods in their pantheon, the god Osiris. And so it's interesting that God turns the Nile into blood. And this was going to have a tremendous uh, consequence 
upon people's health and upon the economy, upon agriculture. And it's uh, believed by those who have taken the time to study all of the chronology of this, these judgments that it took seven or eight months to bring about all of these judgments. Well, the second plague was the plague of frogs, which is described in Exodus uh, 8, 1 through 15. And again, this is related to one of the goddesses in the pantheon, the goddess Heket, who uh, was the one who was believed to have breathed life into the bodies of those that were created by her husband, the god Canum. And so the frogs then were not to be killed. So they just had all these frogs everywhere. You'd get up in the morning, you'd have 30 or 40 frogs in your bed, and you would go into your dresser, and as you were pulling out your clothes, you'd have to shake the frogs out of your clothes. And when you went into the pantry, the frogs were in your box of Cheerios, and uh, they were everywhere. And you couldn't do anything about them. You couldn't kill them. They're just frogs everywhere, and because of their the fact that they were associated with divinity, uh, they could do, do nothing, but eventually they began to die, and they began to rot. And so you come to a, another plague, the plague of gnats and mosquitoes, and then the fourth plague, the swarms of flies, which there seems to be a cycle that would be followed uh, along here. The plague of sometimes translated uh, gnats, it could be mosquitoes, you can just imagine what that might be like to have all these mosquitoes, and with the way disease is often spread by mosquitoes, that in turn would produce a number of uh, consequent deaths within the uh, within the Egyptian uh, culture. You had the dense swarms of flies in Exodus chapter eight, verses uh, twenty to thirty-two, described, and of course this would be rep- would represent another of the Egyptian deities, the god Re. And then the fifth uh, plague, the death of the livestock, would have also uh, been a problem, and this was associated with various different uh, gods in their pantheon. The god Apis and is represented by a bull, and uh, Hathor was depicted in the form of a woman with the head of a cow. So you had these various gods associated with livestock, and now God of the Jews is destroying the livestock. And then the next plague had to do with boils. This is the first plague that directly affected the health of individuals. And there was one of their gods, Newt, the sky goddess, was not able to uh, forestall any of the storms. And Osiris, who was a god of fertility, couldn't uh, take care of some of the things there. Uh, I'm getting into the fiery hail. Uh, also, that involved the, the sky goddess, Newt, and the... Uh, uh, storm god set, and again, the God of the Jews is showing his authority and sovereignty over the false gods of the Egyptians, and then the locusts and the darkness, and then the death of the firstborn. So that just gives you a little review of what's going on there. What God is doing is not only bringing discipline upon the Egyptians for their failure to release the Jews, but he's also demonstrating his authority uh, over their whole culture and over the gods and goddesses in the pantheon. He's demonstrating the complete uh, falsity of their entire religious system. Now, when we get into the trumpet judgments, five or six of these correlate 
to the judgments that occurred in Exodus. Now, the point here is that if those judgments in Exodus were literal, if those judgments in Exodus were literal, if, that were, were, if those were literal flies and literal gnats, and if those, that was the literal death of the livestock, and the water was turned into literal blood, and the hail was uh, literally fiery hail, then we must be consistent in the Scriptures and also understand that these judgments in the trumpet judgments are to be understood in a literal fashion and that these are not symbols of nations, they're not symbols of peoples, they're not symbols of different uh, historical events or historical crises. And this happens, though. You often hear people talk about this and try to explain these judgments in terms of some sort of, of uh, historical crisis or clash among the nations or war historically, something like that. We have hail, uh, fire, the fire and blood in Revelation 8-7. The darkness is third of the moon, the third of the sun uh, are darkened, the third of the stars are darkened. The locust demons that come out of the earth in the in Revelation chapter 9 in the fifth uh, plague, uh, this is reminiscent of the locusts in the uh, judgments on uh, Egypt, although those were literal locusts. These are locust-like demons. And then, of course, death in uh, Revelation 9, 9 and 18 is uh, related to the death of so many Egyptians, the death of the livestock, and the death of the firstborn. So just as we interpret the ancient judgments in Exodus in a literal fashion, so we are to interpret the judgments that we read about here in a literal fashion so that we can uh, understand exactly what is going to happen. And the use of hail in these judgment passages is common throughout the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah 11:15, we read, And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt, and he will ha- uh, wave his hand over the river, that's the River Nile, with his scorching wind, and he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry ground. This is a related to the prediction of future judgment upon Egypt. And in verse 16, we read, There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left. This takes place at the end of the tribulation period as the uh, Jews who survive as believers are brought back to the land. And then there's this comparison. Just as there was for Israel in the day they came up out of the land of Egypt. Note that comparison, that the future is going to be just like what happened in the past. So if the past is understood literally, the future events must be understood uh, literally as well. Um, Joel 2.30 says, I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. This, of course, is a description of the judgments during the day of the Lord, which is a term that describes the judgment judgments in the tribulation uh, period. This is to be understood just as literally as passages like such as Psalm 105, 32, and 33, which relates back to the Egyptian judgments, and those were literal. So in, throughout the Scripture you see this uh, going back and forth, this comparison between the judgments 
in Egypt and the future judgments during the tribulation period. In Joel 1, 15 through 20, we have a further description of the day of the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clod, storehouses are in shambles, barns are broken down, for the grain has withered. How the animals groan, the herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. See, that relates to, we, we see the, the, the uh, destruction of the gra- all the grass on the earth. Even the flocks of sh- sheep suffer punishment. O Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up, and the fire has devoured the open pastures. So there's this thematic structure we see throughout Scripture, God using these judgments to multitask in the way he deals with things. Now, when we get into the tribulation period, he's not striking down a specific system of religion per se like he did with the Egyptians, but he is still attacking their object of faith, which is the creation itself. Remember, Romans 1.25 says that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And we see that today, the seeds of that, and it's, it's prevalent throughout the world in terms of the way many people worship Mother Earth, Gaia Mother Earth, borrowing the term from the uh, ancient uh, Greek goddess for the earth, and that this that much of modern environmentalism is a worship of the earth. And so God is going to take this object of their worship and is going to bring judgment upon the earth. And there's a reason why God is bringing judgment upon the earth during the tribulation period, and he has to take the earth through all of these various judgments. Part of it has to do with destroying the object of their worship. They are worshiping the earth and worshiping the creation, and God is showing his power and control over the earth and over the creation. He will destroy that. But it's also part of the fact that God has to bring this this judgment as a form of purification and cleansing even on the natural creation itself, because everything has been affected by sin. The sin of Adam did not just affect Adam. It just didn't affect uh, Adam and Eve. It didn't affect just mankind. The sin of Adam had consequences that reverberated throughout all of natural creation. It changed the laws of physics as they existed prior to the fall. There were differences. Before the fall, there were, there were no hurricanes. You did not have earthquakes on the earth. All of these natural disasters that we witness today from tornadoes to hailstorms uh, to hurricanes, these are a product of living in a post-fall, fallen environment And that environment has to be also judged and cleansed, purified in preparation for the establishment of the kingdom when Jesus Christ returns at the end of the tribulation period. This is what is referred to in Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, turn there. I just have a couple of the verses up here on the screen, but there are more than 
There's more than those two that I want to reference. Verse 20, Paul tells us that the creation was subject to to futility. This has to do with the judgment as a result of sin. It was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it, that is, God in his justice had to also bring judgment upon the earth, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. That the earth itself, nature itself, is under bondage because of sin. It is has to be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's verse 21. If you go on to look at verse 22, we read, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that is, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have uh, who are dwelt by the Spirit, been baptized by the Spirit, identified with Christ, said not only that, but we who also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And so there is this recognition that there is a redemption. He's talking about the redemption of our physical body. That's the connection there with the term first fruits. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. That redemption has to do not only with a spiritual realm, but also a physical realm. That's why Christ's physical resurrection was so important. It was the fact that God is going to solve the physical consequences that came as a result of sin. Sin affected, for example, the serpent has judgment. He's going to crawl on his scuts and not walk upright, that there were changes biologically to the woman in terms of the uh, whole uh, reproduction uh, system, reproduction process, changes in in relation to botany for now... um, Plants are going to bring forth thorns and thistles, and you're going to have weeds in the garden and all of these other problems as a result of sin. So God God judged sin at the cross with Jesus Christ, but he also has to resolve the problems, the consequences that come from sin as it's affected all all of creation. And so that is part of what is going on in the tribulation period with these various judgments. Well, let's go back to our passage in Revelation uh, Revelation chapter 8. Verse 7 described the first judgment, hail and fire followed or mixed, mingled with blood, thrown to the earth. As a result of that, a third of the trees are burned up, a third of the uh and all the green grass uh, is destroyed, burned up. So a third of the vegetation is burned up and all the grass is burned up. This is a result of this particular, uh, this particular judgment. Now, in the sealed judgments, the impact was on a quarter of the earth, quarter of the earth's population, quarter of other things, the seas. But this is going to intensify to a third in the, in the trumpet judgments. When we get to the bold judgments, it's everything. So there's this graduated escalation of God's judgment. The 
first judgment deals with the vegetation on the earth, and then the second trumpet judgment is going to deal with the seas, the judgment upon the seas. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, if we understand this literally, this great mountain is something like an asteroid. We also have a fiery asteroid as part of the third trumpet, but this looked and had the appearance of a uh, great mountain that was burning with fire coming into the sea. It's not a fiery mountain. That would be a volcano. And that would be a misreading of the text. But it is a great mountain that is burning with fire. So it is like a huge fiery comet or asteroid that impacts the sea in a devastating way. And a third of the sea becomes blood. Just as the Nile became blood in the first plague against the Egyptians. And this is going to wipe out. Uh, a third of the creatures that live in the sea, it's going to pretty much wipe out the seafood restaurant business and uh, the shipping business as well. Uh, a third of the sea creatures die and a third of the ships are destroyed. And so it's going to have an economic, uh, economic consequence that is going to be devastating for most of the nations upon the earth. And then we come to the third trumpet judgment in verse 10. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. Now, the second trumpet affected salt water. The third trumpet affects fresh water. It falls on a third of the rivers, so it wipes out the water supplies, the springs, the artesian wells that are used to provide drinking water for the people upon the earth as well as to water and fertilize, uh, water the crops and, and provide for them. So the fresh water's destroyed. The name of this star is called wormwood. It's not, uh, that, that is a plant that grows in the Middle East that, uh, when it is, uh, has a bitter flavor to it and when it's in water, it would destroy the potability of the water. So the star is called wormwood. And a third of the waters become like wormwood. It's talking about the fact that it makes the waters bitter, just as in the uh, exodus from Egypt, as the Jews came out and were clamoring for water, they came to the springs that were later called Merah, and the water was bitter, and they complained against God. And so Moses, uh, God told Moses to strike the rock, and fresh water would come out. So this is the reverse of that. Rather than taking the bitter water and making it fresh, the fresh water is made bitter, a third of the waters on the earth. So this is going to intensify the death and destruction during the uh, tribulation period. And then we come to the fourth trumpet, the fourth trumpet judgment. Verse 12, the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck. So first we have the destruction uh, that began in the first trumpet judgment on vegetation. The second judgment affected the saltwater seas. The third judgment affected freshwater. And the fourth uh, judgment affects the heavenly bodies. A third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck. So this is going to diminish the amount of light that comes upon the earth. And this light from the sun is necessary for 
the growth of plants and the growth of crops. And so this combined with the loss of water is going to uh, increase the famines that began with the second uh, second seal judgment so that uh, a third of them are now darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it in a night the same way. Now, we, it's hard, difficult to understand how this minimizes the length of the day, but for a the, the, the length of the day seems to shorten, and this is probably from the vantage point of people on the earth as they experience what has happened to the heavenly bodies. This is going to have uh, other consequences as well. And then there is an interruption of the progress here as a, an eagle is seen flying in mid-heaven. This is not an angel, which is King James translates it that way based on a a uh, problem in the Textus Receptus has uh, introduced the wrong word here. There's an eagle that God uses, flies in heaven, uh, screaming with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe. We've studied four of the trumpet judgments. The last three trumpet judgments are these three woes. This is a further intensification of the judgments that come on those who dwell on the earth. Now, we studied this before, that this phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is a technical term in Revelation for those who harden themselves against God and refuse to respond to the gospel, refuse to respond to God's grace during the tribulation period. So they have hardened themselves, and they will never uh, respond. They'll never turn to God. They will never believe in Christ. And what happens is that there is an intensification of this woe of these judgments specifically upon those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels that are about to sound. And this gets us into the ninth chapter where we go through the fifth trumpet, which are the locusts from the uh, bottomless pit, and then the sixth trumpet the and the demonic army actually that is released from under the Euphrates. The ninth chapter gets us into an entire framework of understanding related to the role of demons and the fallen angels during the tribulation uh, period. The eighth trumpet, I mean the seventh trumpet, will then expose the final series of judgments, the bowl judgments. So what we see from this is that God is going to bring these judgments during the tribulation period not merely as a way of bringing punishment upon those who have rejected him, but he's multitasking. He is destroying the object of their worship, which is the creation, the uh, the earth itself. He punishes them, for example, with uh, fiery hail. And the punishment under the Mosaic law for idolatry was that an idolater was to be stoned. So in a way, God is bringing a stoning judgment against the unbelievers during the tribulation period. But he is also demonstrating his grace because throughout this period he continues to have the gospel proclaimed. And this eagle flying through the heavens announcing this judgment is one of many ways in which God announces ahead of time the judgments that he's going to bring. We will see when we get into the bold judgment that there are angels who will uh, be visible and audible during the final days of the tribulation period, who will fly through the heaven, heavens proclaiming the gospel to all who dwell upon the earth, but they continue to resist and reject the gospel. 
And the gospel then is the same now, which is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and by simply trusting in him, we have eternal life. Failure to trust in him, failure to obey God, results in judgment both in time and history and in the future. And so this is one of the reasons why prophecy is such a great study, because it is used by God in evangelism, because it emphasizes the fact that there is judgment coming and that people need to be aware that the only way to avoid that is to put your faith alone in Christ alone, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to study these things today, to see the uh, strands of history from the exodus in the ancient world through the future events of the tribulation, which reveal these patterns and purposes that you have in human history. Father, we're thankful that you have provided us with a perfect salvation, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and that his death on the cross provides the basis for our redemption, our purchase from the slave market of sin, and it also supplies the basis for the future redemption of creation, the freeing of creation from the curse of sin and the corruption of sin. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsaved, uncertain of their salvation, unsure of their eternal destiny, that you would that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the human race. He paid the price in full. The issue is not your sin. The issue is faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him, believing that he died on the cross for your sins and that he alone gives you righteousness and the ability to stand before God and to be accepted in God's presence. At this instant, if you trust in Christ, then Scripture tells us that you receive the righteousness of Christ, that you're justified, you're regenerated, you receive eternal life, and this can never be taken from you. At the instant you believe in Christ, God knows what you have trusted in, and at that instant you have eternal salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've learned today, being reminded that you are a God who is resolving the sin problem, and you are a God who has provided salvation for us and a God of grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.